0: Hello and welcome to the next episode in our diversity faculty podcast series. I'm Neha Rao, Senior Client D&I and Engagement Manager, and I'm joined by my fellow diversity faculty members, Simon Kerr-Davis, Counsel in our Employment and Incentives Team, Daniel Danso, our Global Diversity Leader, and Laurie Olivant, Senior Lawyer in our Employment and Incentives Team. In today's podcast, we're going to be tackling the very thorny topics of targets, quotas and positive discrimination. Now, Daniel, over to you first. What do you think of targets and quotas as a way to drive change in DNI? i
1: um, I mean, I, th- I think we have to first kind of understand the difference between targets and quotas because they basically do the same thing. Um, they, they try to fix an imbalance by introducing diversity in this case into various spheres. Um, the major difference though is that targets are an aspiration uh, and a quota implies that the shortage will be filled by whatever group is missing, regardless of ability or fit for that sphere. Um, and I, I think the other you know, end of this is targets and quotas are also kind of run with the assumption that the environment that they're bringing them in is also fit and ready for the diversity that they're trying to you know, att- acquire. And so for me, when we thought about Linklaters, and I'll use us as an example, you know, we had a year-long conversation around the firm before we went with gender targets because we wanted everyone to understand the difference between those two things. Um, but we also wanted to protect individuals because the, the psychological after effect of being the subject of a target or a quota was really strong. And it meant that you know, in the case of women, when we were looking at gender targets, you know, the potential for any woman to get promoted and for people to question um, whether or not she was right for the role or whether it was because we have gender targets was really you know, huge. So we wanted to make sure that we both protected the individual, but also you know, uh, talked to the, the people in the culture to make sure that when someone was promoted, it was because they were good not just because they happen to fit whatever diversity strand we were targeting and focused on at the moment. So I think targets and quotas, um, they can either you know, be a, b- a benefit, I would go for targets myself, quotas are, aren't really helpful, um, and I would use targets as a line in the sand. You may not always meet them, but it's about understanding the system that may have dropped down in various places that challenged whether or not you met a target.
2: Yeah, I'd agree with that. And from my perspective, coming at it from the from the legal side, I think it's important to differentiate between targets and quotas too, even if they do have the same purpose and end game. As Daniel says, targets really are an aspiration. And so it's something that I see organisations can aim towards. Um, and whilst we might have critics saying that Targets are a lesser commitment than a quota. It does allow the company to control the narrative around when targets are not met. Whereas for quotas, I think they can often be seen as a failure to achieve something or to make do on a promise. And from a legal perspective, that's really important. And we'll come on to talk about this in more detail shortly. But in a nutshell, in the UK, employers aren't able to lawfully, positively discriminate. And so if a company does set a quota and then doesn't meet it, Um, it can cause issues from a legal perspective if it's then trying to take steps in order to meet that quota and make do on that promise.
3: And aside from that pure legal risk, we still do have that risk of tokenism sitting right at the centre of this where you know that there will be allegations that this person is simply a token. And that's that's a real problem.
0: Yeah, I find this whole conversation around tokenism to be so interesting Mostly because it does put a lot of the emphasis and spotlight on the uh, minority individuals or members of the underrepresented groups, when really I do think of it as a psychological uh, process going on in the minds of the majority. Because I find it very interesting that it's only now in the wake of the diversity and inclusion conversation that people will scream tokenism. And yet before diversity and inclusion entered the arena, nobody questioned why majority people were getting promoted, whether that was because of what school they went to, uh, what relationships they had on the golf course, uh, what sort of informal networks they had access to, all of which are not merit-based factors and would be considered tokenistic. And if you do look at the sheer size of the majority representation in an organization, there is definitely more chance of tokenism um, having been a factor in a lot of their presence, and yet we don't question it. I find it a very interesting psychological leap to now question it when we start seeing um, members of the minority group move into positions.
1: I agree with that, and I, and I do think that you know some of this is about validating the personal experience of the people that are coming through. Um, you, we hear so much that people are promoted and the first thing that people think about them is like, oh, you're the diversity candidate, um, rather than you're, you're actually you know, one of the lead contenders for this role, irrespective of what your diversity is. But it is that, that natural kind of need for us to classify things and I think when people get into the world of work, they have to make some super quick decisions, um, and some of those things will have very little to do with someone's acumen, and they may have a lot to do with what that person represents to them. And unfortunately, um, in, the, in the respects of s- populations that are really underrepresented, when you do find candidates that would, without a doubt, um, be viable candidates for leadership, for promotion, for whatever, you know, suddenly their diversity supersedes that, that readiness and that fit, and they become part of that group that you're looking to target. And that then, to me, that's the thing that I mean by it chips away at that psychological after effect of like, so we, we've got all of these race programs going on right now and a focus, you know, on black people. if it's not done correctly, I think any black person in the city that gets promoted right now will be thinking, was I gonna be promoted last year? If George Floyd hadn't been murdered, would my promotion be happening right now in the same way? And I think that's why a business has got to be so clear about what it's doing because the expectation of discrimination and tokenism
3: is is quite real. And the reality is too, I mean, we are seeing, some cases which do indicate the beginning of a bit of a backlash. So earlier this year, a case came out, J. Walter Thompson, the advertising agency, um, were accused of positive discrimination. And when you look at the facts, it's actually pretty difficult to argue against. I mean, this was an organization which had a uh, massive gender pay gap, 40, almost 45% gender pay gap. So they had identified that they had a problem They didn't have very many senior women um, and they had this gender pay gap that strongly indicated high rewards for senior men. So they went on public record saying that they wanted to change that, they wanted to do something about it. And they did that quite graphically with uh, one of their senior leaders doing a presentation with a slogan written up on a screen which was white British privileged straight men creating traditional above the line advertising and they struck it through with a line saying, you know, this this has to change, we don't want to be the boys club anymore. Um, And two of their male employees raised a complaint, a concern saying, people are worried about this, people are not comfortable. At the same time, the organization was going through a redundancy process and these two individuals were in the redundancy pool. There was also one female candidate in the redundancy pool who was removed from that pool. So these two men were selected, ultimately, from an all-male pool and were dismissed by reason of redundancy, claimed sex discrimination, harassment, victimization, and unfair dismissal, and won in the employment tribunal on on all counts. Now that's a, a pretty skewed, pretty extreme set of facts, but nevertheless, I think it does show that people are on the lookout for what they may see as positive discrimination or tokenism, um, and that action will be taken. Um, and it's confusing for employers. It's really confusing because you're left with the situation where you know that you want to change things, but you can get it wrong and move too easily into positive discrimination. But you can use positive action. And maybe Laurie, do you want to just talk a little bit about positive action?
2: Yeah, sure. So we are often asked how employers can positively discriminate in order to achieve diversity team practice. And as Simon says, there is this assumption that employers can positively discriminate when they've got the best intentions because they want to achieve the diverse targets and quotas that they might have signed up to. But under UK laws, this is unlawful. And however well-intentioned the action might be, it can still be discrimination, even if it's positive discrimination. And so the classic example is appointing a female employee to even things up a bit. Um, But as Simon says, the law does allow employees to take positive action but it's only in two quite limited situations. The first is generally and then the second is on recruitment and promotion. So firstly looking at when it's taken generally, an employer can apply positive action where there's participation in an activity by those who share a protected characteristic and it's disproportionately low or they suffer from a particular disadvantage. And in that case, the employer can then take positive action to enable or encourage those persons to participate in the activity or minimize whatever disadvantage that they are suffering from. Again, a classic example might be where an older generation of employees suffers a disadvantage because they haven't had the same access to technology or certain training or qualifications as part of their education. And so an employer could then arrange for training, especially for this demographic of the workforce, in order to remove that disadvantage. Or another key example might be setting up targeted networking groups and opportunities for certain demographics within the workforce. But all of this still has to be done proportionately by the employer, and so how it's done in practice can be quite limited. Simon, do you want to talk a little bit about how positive action can be taken on recruitment or promotion?
3: Yeah, so there is a a, a second area in which positive action is permitted. And This is a tie-break where you have two equally qualified candidates for a role. You're allowed to use the fact that one of them falls into an underrepresented group to use that as a tie-break and offer them the job, but it's literally only a tie-break. They must, in all other respects, be equally qualified to perform the role. And we all know that when you are looking at recruitment, you don't tend to think, oh yes, these two are exactly the same. I, I, I can't think of a situation where I've seen two exactly equal candidates. And the other thing, of course, is that that means completely removing yourself from thinking about their diversity at all until you come to the tiebreak, which again is quite difficult to accomplish, um, given that we're all human beings. So it's, it's quite a narrow exemption and quite difficult to see where it, where it would actually apply in practice.
2: And because it's quite narrow, we do see employers looking at other ways in which they can drive and achieve diversity in practice beyond positive action at the point of recruitment or promotion. And really that's the more longer term strategic investment into your talent pools and your pipelines and actually ensuring that your decision makers and interviewers and moderators are diverse in themselves and they're well appointed. And so we're avoiding the risk of those recruiting in the same image. But really what I think this means is also about focusing on building an inclusive culture within your organisation and actually focusing and nurturing on your existing diverse talent rather than always looking at it solely from the types of diverse candidates that you actually have coming through the door. So what is interesting
0: uh, that we're seeing in the market at the moment is Targets being imposed by various other industry bodies, um, by charters and uh, industry-wide initiatives and also clients and customers that are pushing it down the supply chain. So just to name drop a few, um, you know, the 30% Club set their stall out as uh, promoting uh, or setting a target of 30% female promotions into senior positions uh, and... Um, the Race Fairness Charter has uh, set out a whole bunch of targets that they would like businesses to sign up for in terms of recruitment, uh, stay gaps and promotion figures. So there are a lot of different targets now circling the market that businesses are encouraged to sign up to. Sometimes there's a lot of pressure for them to sign up to that. But there's not a lot of consistency about what that number is uh, for any particular strand or for any at any particular stage in the pipeline. So it can be quite difficult for businesses to set their own targets internally when they've got all these other outside
2: influences. I think in particular it's really difficult for businesses when they're coming to this fresh or actually they're entering into a newly regulated market or in times of exponential growth because in addition to all of these different charters, benchmarking tools and industry initiatives that they may have signed up to or committed to, there might be changes in regulation which are happening which suddenly apply to them because they meet threshold conditions like gender pay gap reporting Or there might be other things on the horizon that they're thinking about now like ethnicity pay reporting. And so this area is evolving and developing so quickly that we can see that it can be quite overwhelming for businesses to know what's the right thing to do now and what's the right thing to do this time next year.
1: That I think is probably one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing right now is the. Entry point into some of this DI conversation for businesses is so across the board. There are some that have been doing this for generations, and you know, they have actually understood what all of this is giving them and their people, and and then there are others that are just getting hit by new regulations and charters and stuff, and they're they're suddenly trying to scramble to understand a their population the history of dni and how it's it's hitting their business and now what do they need to do and so i think without without clear guidance um, some really great and clear examples of best practice and what has been done i think a lot of these businesses um, may inadvertently flounder and kind of grab on to the most obvious things which are purely process driven like can we Um, collect data, if we do, awesome, job done, as opposed to thinking about what that data is supposed to give you, how you use it. So I think that entry point for diversity is is gonna be one that challenges a lot of different businesses and industries.
3: So should we talk about the point at which targets are applied, um, and the question whether targets can work if they're just at the senior management level? And I think here it's worth drawing on some of the European experiences, where we know that companies have been required, under, under threat of some quite significant financial penalties, to introduce um, targets and have a certain number of uh, women on their, on their boards, and sure enough, you know, under, under threat of financial penalties, companies have managed to put women on, on boards and meet the requirement, but has it actually then fed right the way through the organisation? in the way that targets quotas lower down might actually um, change the organizational makeup right the way through. So Daniel, what what do you think? Is is there a is there a case for targets just at senior management level? Um, no, I
1: mean I think a lot of companies right now have already had longstanding targets for attraction, for Retention, promotion, development—you know how they, you know how they move people through development series, even um, the the training that they're allowed to go on. Um, so there, there have there have always been a lot of different metrics for how businesses are moving people. I think the thing that's changing is the categories of people and groups that they're trying to now track that movement through. So whereas before it was just talent, and then. Uh, suddenly it was oh talent by gender and now it's talent by gender and race and by you know other cultural means and neurodiversity so i think it it is that real overhaul of the business by looking at just how diverse the populations that they have are and where those people get to throughout the course of that employee life cycle um, on down to who they exit and do people exit disproportionately. And I think there have been targets even for those to make sure that they don't lose um, groups. So I, I think that targets aren't new, it's just how the business actually prepares the the culture of that place for new and emerging um groups that need to be recognized, that need to have sponsorship, that need some sort of, uh, I guess, real validation um, for some of the things that they go through and the imbalances that they may have had to work with. And that's why, I mean, I think they're looking at everything now, like um, at targets for work allocation in our case on down to project allocation, to how we are assessing people how we give feedback by group and so I think what you're going to start seeing is not not just the targets but the accountability behind them and I think that's probably the the biggest trend that we're seeing at the moment is not just targets but accountability. So
2: we've spoken quite a lot about tokenism and the fact that employers shouldn't be positively discriminating in order to achieve diversity in practice and instead they can take positive action. but. As we know, and we've discussed, that's quite limited. The scope for actually driving change um, doesn't really give you very much there. So how else do we think businesses can actually advance and promote diverse groups in practice without tokenism or veering into positive discrimination?
1: I think you need to engage the majority. I think, Neha, you you had talked about it either in this podcast or in a previous one where a lot of um, the contentiousness is coming from the majority who are recognizing for the first time in some cases that they've got privileges or benefits um, and that you know their experience isn't necessarily the same as all of their you know colleagues of, of difference whatever that background may be. Um, So I think, for me, historically, a lot of the work on diversity and inclusion was aimed at the minority. So it was like, hey women, you know, we recognize you're underrepresented, here's a program for you. Um, Hey, you know, people of color, this is for you, so sorry about what's going on. You know, so it was really aimed at the minority. But what failed to happen was that the majority was brought along with it. Um, And so when we started, you know, thinking about how we were going to communicate the lack of equity, we would talk to the majority about the things that they already get. So, for example, with our LGBT, you know, stuff just to mix diversity strands, um, we would say to our straight colleagues, you know, we're celebrating LGBT Pride because, you know, now our gay colleagues can get married like our straight colleagues, like some of you have always been able to. I think it's a way of being able to, you know, talk about that imbalance while engaging the majority. It's why we focus so much on allies, and it's why we focus so much on those experiences because, to be honest. If a minority group could deal with and eradicate some of the imbalances that they're faced with on their own, it'd be done by now. It's not like, you know, it's not like black folks are letting racism go on. You know, it's not up up to us completely to fix it. The majority has got to get involved in this. And so I think that's, to me, where we need to go.
0: I would agree with that. and But for me, um, D&I is uh, really a psychological uh, perspective to adopt. It's actually more of a mindset than it is an outcome that we are striving to achieve, first and foremost. So the way I like to think of it is, you know, when somebody's trying to lose weight and they've got a target weight in mind, they can do all sorts of unhealthy things to reach that number on the scales. But whether they do that in a healthy and sustainable way uh, you know, will completely undermine their efforts. So equally, we could do a lot of things to reach 50% uh, gender equality on the boards. We could do a, l- like a lot of problematic behaviour, a lot of tokenistic behaviour that's quite um, disingenuous to get there. But it's not the way we want to get there. It's more of a mindset. So for me, diversity and inclusion is about slowing right down and adopting the mindset that everybody understands they have biases... And everybody takes the time to get to know the individuals around them, particularly ones that aren't the same as them or have different backgrounds for them, actively seeking for people's strengths and skills because that's something that can be um, that your biases can block from your view and and seeking to get to know people on a more one-to-one basis so that you can see their strengths and you can see their skills, you can see the merits that they bring to an organisation. And I think that if you adopt that sort of mentality – Diversity and inclusion will naturally flow. You will naturally get the outcomes you're seeking if everybody is able to adopt that mindset. So that's how I really think that you can avoid anything being tokenistic um, or doing anything that could be perceived as positive discrimination.
3: That's such a great way of thinking about it. Um, Daniel, have you got any last tips on using targets? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say
1: if you view your targets as a line in the sand, um, it's, it's probably a healthy way of doing it because you may or may not always meet them. But, you know, if you, you need to understand all of the different machinations that go into you m- not making it in one year um, and then being able to really pinpoint what you need to address and, and what you need to adjust. And I think on the years that you do make it, Um, you need to celebrate that without being too like, we're done with gender now, we've made it. Because you hear that as soon as somebody reaches a target one year, it's like, woof, we've done gender now, let's move on to something else. And I'm like, wait, is sexism over? I I didn't realize that, that, that that one target just meant that. So I think this is about permanence. It's a slow, painful process that we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about really quick um, impacts and and results that in some cases could take a long long time to actually see visibly but I think if you're working on the culture along with that just understand that it, it, it's not a quick fix there's no silver bullet our challenges are varied and so our solutions have to be as well.
2: Great. I mean, on that note, that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. But if anyone does have any questions or would like to discuss these issues that we've spoken about further, then please do get in touch with us. And thank you for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. Bye.